Good morning. Um, we're going to get started because we have an hour and we have a lot of information to share with you all. Okay. Um, so I'm Peter Broderick and I'm really excited to be here. This is the fourth time I've been in IFA. And I, I can't remember what year the first one was. It was probably maybe 2005. And between every IFA, so there's five years, five years, three years, three years, things have changed. Um, and so as all of you know, we're living <coughs> in the middle of a distribution revolution. And however fast you think, sir, you think things are changing, I think they're changing hourly. Um, so I'm going to try to give you some bulletins from the frontier here. Um, I could, what I, I, at a certain point, um, I made up a term for what I do, which was distribution, which is distribution strategist, and nobody else has that term, so I have no competition. <laughs> and uh, as as times go by, I started doing this in 2002, and so as of today, I've consulted on over 1,300 films, and so what I'm going to talk with you about today is not my theories, but it's the practice of the filmmakers that I've worked with, the lessons they've learned the mistakes they've made. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an overview of the roadmap of um, where things stand right now. But before I start, I want to pass these out. I have a distribution bulletin that I do a few times a year, um, and then I send it out to everyone. Um, right now there are 11,000 people around the world who are subscribers. And I'm going to pass these clipboards around. If you'd like me to send it to you, I'd be happy to do that. It costs nothing. And um, hopefully, has some useful information. Okay, so <clears throat> let me just first briefly juxtapose two worlds the old world, what I call the old world of distribution, and the new world. Now, these worlds coexist. Um, but they're very different. I hope you can read that. People in the back, can you see it from the back? Okay, sorry, mm -hmm. a little bit. Anyways, this is on my website, so <laughs> if you can't see it very well, I'll just go through it quickly. So, in the old world of distribution, you give all your rights to one company, and then they do whatever they're going to do with your movie. You have no control whatsoever. And in the new world of distribution, you split up your rights, you make deals with different companies, and you retain the right to sell your film directly from your website. The difference between these two worlds is huge. Um, and other aspects of the old world, um, they generally are, the distributors are generally very formulaic in how they distribute your film, which means they distribute every film the same way which is kind of throw it against the wall and see if it sticks. And if it sticks, they'll support it some more. And if it doesn't stick, they won't support it some more, but they're not gonna give you your film back. So that's the worst of both worlds. They have somebody controlling your distribution and, and they have them do not, doing nothing. But that's not uncommon. In the old world, you don't have any direct contact audience. There's always middlemen or middle women, mostly middlemen, between you and your audience. 
So if you're in theaters, there's the exhibitors. If you're uh, on uh, television, there's channels. If you're you know, available digitally, there's platforms. So there's um, very little interaction between you and audience. Maybe you go to occasional screenings and there is some. In the new world, you have direct access to audience because those people can be subscribing to your mailing list. They can be emailing you. They can be coming to your website. They can be going to your Facebook page. And the direct contact with people in your audience is night and day different from assuming what those people, how those people are responding to your film and actually knowing. And if you're in direct contact with those people, there's a possibility of you building an audience around your film. And what I ultimately want you to do is be able to build an audience around you as a passionate filmmaker. So to be able to aggregate that audience and take it with you film to film. And if, there's a, if you think of a spectrum of independence, maybe I'll get to that slide this time. So on the one end is the totally dependent filmmaker, even though they say they're independent. So they're always chasing money, chasing distribution, and may have to have a day job to pay the rent. On the other end is the totally independent filmmaker who isn't chasing money, has resources to make the films, isn't chasing distribution, can pick and choose distribution partners, and is, is paying the rent without a day job. So it's how you can move further along that spectrum to greater independence what I would suggest to you is what really correlates with greater independence is having a bigger personal audience. So um, a few other things about the old world. In the old world, as you know, it's a territory by territory model. So let's say someone in Holland makes a film and they want to see in France what happens. Ten grumpy French distributors watch their film. And if they're not persuaded that it's going to make them money, nobody in France gets to see the movie. And that's the way it's been for decades. But not any longer in the new world, because in the new world, you can make your film available directly from your website worldwide, and you don't need the grumpy distributors to okay that. So let's say you're working with a foreign sales agent, and there's some very good foreign sales agents, um, and they make deals in, say, 10 territories or 15 territories. That leaves 200 countries where nobody has access to your film. So I want you to be able to sell to those people directly from your website. So the challenge then is not making it available worldwide. The challenge is how you market the film globally. And when I talk to traditional distributors about that, they say, well, to market a film in other territories, you'll have to have advertising in each territory. I'm like, did you ever hear of the internet? <laughs> um, so I'm going to talk to you a little bit about give you a couple examples of people that have um, recently done very impressive things and then keep going, you know, kind of through the roadmap. So other things about the differences between these two worlds, um, and I guess Hollywood studios would embody the old world, um, but there are plenty of other distributors that fit into that category as well. Um, so when you're making a film, you have creative control. I want you to have distribution control <coughs> bringing it into the world. And you're not going to have distribution control if you've made one deal and given all your rights to one company. They will have total control of your movie for five years, seven years, ten years, infinity. Um, so if you split up your rights and you have different partners and they're doing things directly, then you can control your distribution. 
in the old world, I think there's a very condescending attitude toward audience. A lot of these folks think of the audience as sort of couch potatoes that they have to lure off the couch for the first weekend to get them somehow into the theater. Hollywood studios think of audience in quadrants, which is older males, younger males, older females, younger females. That's such a pathetic definition of audience um, that I'm amazed that they um, still use it. But mostly these, these distributors are looking backwards. They're looking at how things used to be and used to work. They're paying very little attention to what's going on today, and they're certainly not looking forward. So if you ask me how you should think about audience, I think demographics are a complete waste of time. I think psychographics are a waste of time. Because you should think about how people are organized online. Almost anybody that has internet access that's in your potential audience is somewhere online. There's a seat up here that somebody want to see. There's a seat in the middle, second row. It's really good seat. <laughs> okay, that's right. Um, okay, so in the um, in the new world, you should think of audience not in this kind of condescending way, but as potential partners, mentors, patrons of people that can support your film in all sorts of different ways. Um, so this is a, a map, the honorable Camp explained to me that it's actually a Dutch map. I didn't know that until two days ago. Um, so these are filmmakers who have gotten on ships and they've left the old world and they're headed to a new world. And, and the sea monsters can represent whatever you think they should represent. <laughs> Okay, so I think every film should have a customized distribution strategy. Customized to that film, your goals, your audiences, the windows, the versions of the film you're going to do. And if you don't do a customized strategy, if you just have a kind of formulaic strategy, your chances of succeeding are much worse. So let's start with goals. Now, this may seem like an easy question. But I can tell you almost every filmmaker that I work with, I ask, tell me what your ultimate goal for the film is. A lot of people say, for as many people to see the movie as possible. I don't regard that as an ultimate goal. I think that's a means to an end. The question is, what's the end? Are you trying to change the world? Are you trying to maximize your career? Are you trying to maximize revenue? Those goals are not mutually exclusive, but you need to prioritize them. I want to know what's the most important thing for you Maybe what's the second goal, what's the third goal? And if you have clarity about your goals, then it makes it easy to have a framework within which you can make decisions as you move through your distribution. And if you're not clear about your goals, then it's kind of chaotic, because you're saying, well, this would help me with my career, but this other way would help me make more money, and this way would you know, have impact, and it just kind of goes on and on. So that's, that's the first step in making a strategy. <clears throat> the next step is, to target essential audiences, target core audiences. Now, in the old world of distribution, people thought about audiences like they finished the movie and they said, okay, now it's time to think about how we're going to get it into the world. I would like you to think about audience from the very beginning. The morning you dream up your next film in the shower, that's when I want you to start thinking about who are the core audiences for that movie. And I'm not, I don't mean that you can't go to general audiences ultimately. But I want you to target the core audiences, succeed with core audiences initially, and that gives you a base to build on to go to wider audiences. Okay, the next 
and part of the thinking about your strategy is that to identify potential partners. So are there NGOs, are there associations, are there companies that could be partners in your distribution? <coughs> and you want to identify these folks early, the potential partners early, and then start talking to them. There's a film that I consulted on called Age of Champions. Have any of you, anybody knows it? Okay, one person. It's about senior athletes. And on my website, there's a distribution about Age of Champions and what they did. And there's a lot of lessons in what they did. They prioritized conferences over festivals. They started out by identifying a list of 200 potential partners, and they went under down to six. And those were the partners that they worked with you know, throughout the distribution. And when you, when you ask them, well, what, what makes a good partner? It's not necessarily somebody that's going to give you money. In fact, I'd say in most cases that's not an option. But it's an organization that can use your film to help accomplish their goals. And if you identify organizations that can do that, then it's not rocket science to figure out a way to have some relationship with them. You want a win-win situation, which is going to help the film and help them. And they can, you know, they can give you in-kind resources, they could support a screening tour, they could connect you to funders. There's a lot of things that they can do for you if they're good partners. But do not wait until the film is done to go to those organizations. The likelihood they're gonna say yes is much greater if you're still making the movie. Because then they feel like you're they're a real partner. If you go after the film is done, it's like, oh, it's kind of an afterthought. You don't want them to think you're asking for them to do you a favor. You want them to understand you're giving them an opportunity to work with your film. And the next next part of thinking about a strategy is to think about your windows of distribution. And I'll give you a sequence that I think applies to a lot of documentaries, but it uh, it can vary depending on the film. So probably not many people can read this past the third row. I'm sorry. <coughs> Um, but I'll, I'll say what they are. So this is kind of an order, or at least a normal order. So festivals you all know about. And the thing I say about festivals is that they're overrated. There are very few festivals that you can be in that are going to make a meaningful difference in your distribution. There's some of them that can help your career, some of them that might get attention to, for distributors, <coughs> some of them might generate some press attention, but um, mostly they're local, there's a local audience, and it's nice to have some more laurel leaves for each of you, um, but filmmakers spend so much time and effort going to small festivals and pay very little attention to uh, conferences. And I can tell you, I can give you one example, there's a film called Lioness, which is a documentary about women who came back from the war in the Middle East, came back to the US, and there was no healthcare for them, there was no support. This documentary was made, and they premiered it in Washington at a conference where the 500 most important people supporting women after war were in the room. They saw the movie, those 500 people, they liked the movie, and the future of that film was assured from that single screening. Because then they were gonna go back to their organizations or their cities, they were gonna figure out ways to use the movie, they were gonna tell other people in those poor audiences about the movie, and they were in, in a great position. And go back to Age of Champions, one of the things that um, partners they were able to get was the 
AARP, which is the organization for seniors in the US. And that's a very, very hard organization to get involved. And in that case, what happened, they gave them $20,000 toward production. When the film was done, they said, well, can we screen it for some of our members? So now they're testing the film, seeing how members respond. The, res the response was so good, they said, okay, we'd like to finance a screening tour. We'll give you $100,000 to show it in 20 cities around the United States. Um, so that's, that's how an organization can understand how valuable a film can be and give you support. In that case, they gave money, which is unusual, but there's a lot of other ways that can help you. Okay, so then the thing about conferences to understand is that unlike film festivals that have a simple application process, conferences don't have an application process. They're not really about showing films. They sometimes figure out their agendas a year in advance. So you need to be really proactive to identify the conferences, Organizations that you're thinking of work with, working with may have an annual meeting or an annual conference or academic conferences. There's just so many conferences out there. Um, and I think you need to try to you know, target them and reach out to them and tell them about your film. Okay, theatrical. Now theatrical is healthier in Europe than it is in the United States. In the United States, theatrical for documentaries is almost over. That doesn't mean you can't be in a movie theater, it just means you can't have an audience. So there was, there was, you know, a couple of years ago this was, it was different, and there have been exceptions, you know, Amy Winehouse got an audience, but um, it's, it's very common for a film to be in a theater and to have one or two people in every screening. So I, I recommend that you de-emphasize theatrical, maybe you start, you know, in one city and get some press. And then the next area, which has really grown and is really exciting is what I call special event screenings. These are one-off screenings. Some of them are, could be in theaters, they could be on campuses, they could be in museums, art centers. Somebody is renting your film and basically showing the film to their normal audience. And if you're there, the filmmaker, or somebody associated with the movie is there, or you Skype in, or there's a panel, something else is going on around that screening. It's not just a screening. So people understanding that that event is happening are like, we have to get there Tuesday night. It's gonna be a unique opportunity to experience this movie and hopefully talk with other people about it afterwards. And one of the films I'm involved in now, we've done over 500 special event screenings around the United States. And that's really what's assured um, the impact of the film. Because, I mean, the ba basic thing is you're trying to get to a critical measure of awareness of your film. However good it is, if nobody knows it's there, well, it's not going to go very well. But if people who care about what the film's about know about your film and like your film, they're going to tell other people about it. And that word of mouth is way more valuable than traditional advertising or a lot of those <coughs> other things that happen in the old world. Then there's television. Depending on what country you're in, that can be your basic nightmare because there's very few channels that, and they're all looking for films like ones they distributed before, they showed before successfully, but still, you know, that can be very helpful. But I want to make a distinction between transactional VOD and subscription VOD. So transactional VOD, where somebody is buying the film or renting the film for, you know, if it's streaming, that's iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. You can get on these platforms without any help from any um, aggregator or distributor. 
there are a couple companies out there, and you pay them a fee, I don't know, $750, $150, whatever, depending on the channel, and they put you on that platform, and you get all the revenues from that deal. Um, aggregators typically put you on those platforms, and then they're going to take 20, 25, up to 50% of the revenue. But when you get the subscription VOD, SVOD, which is Netflix, Amazon Prime, and Hulu, um, then you need somebody going to those places and pitching the film. So, as you may know, Netflix is doing much less acquisition, and documentaries they have now, they're not renewing, and in some cases they're not even showing, making them available for the whole license period. They're, they're moving to, toward original content really rapidly. Amazon Prime is doing a little more with documentary, and Hulu, based on what happened like last week, I think is going to be doing much less with documentary. So it's a it's a time of transition, and most of those things are bad. Um, now, this next line, which is making your film available directly from your website, digitally and on DVD. When you make distribution deals, you have to retain that right. And if the distributor is not going to let you retain that right, I don't think you should be making that deal. This is so important. It's not just important because it's revenue, and it's revenue that's going to be more per you know sale than any other way you get revenue. Because with iTunes, they keep thirty percent, and you know on like that, people are selling directly, buying directly from you. You keep all the revenue. But more important, the people buying from you directly, you have their names and email addresses, and you can add them to your mailing list. You can add them to your personal audience. And iTunes is not going to tell you who's buying your movie, and Amazon's not going to tell you. And, this is one of the only ways that you can get it. Now let me ask, how many of you are on Facebook? How many of you have websites? How many of you have meaningful mailing lists? Yeah, so okay, so let me just say that having a mailing list where you have the names and emails of people on your mailing list, and you can be in touch with them when you want, with the regularity you want, is far more important than being on Facebook and far more important than having a website. I could give you 100 examples of why that's true, and even if you just start with 50 people or 10 friends, building that mailing list over time is, is really important because the people on that, on that um, mailing list, you can build kind of a relationship with them. So in the ideal world, I'd like you to see you go to those people once a month <coughs> and send them something they want to receive. That's the trick. Do not send them boring updates. Do not send them relentless self-promotion. So let's say you're making a film with gorgeous cinematography. Maybe you send them an image once a month. Let's say you're making a film that's music-driven. Maybe you send them some music once a month. Maybe you're making a food film. You're going to send them some recipes once a month. But figure out what people on your mailing list are excited to receive, and we'll open your emails and tell other people about the list and why it's a great list to be on. And over time, that list is one of the most valuable things that you have. And later I'll talk about all the ways the people in your core audience can help you. And then last is retail DVD, which obviously has fallen probably through the floor in Europe and headed that way in the US. Um, okay, so let's see. We're, okay, I'm going to show you a couple examples quickly. Um, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not going to show the clips because I don't think we have enough time. I'm going to tell you the stories. 
I jumped over educational sales. That's a really important <laughs> mistake. Okay, in Europe, educational sales are not significant. In the US, they're more significant than they've ever been. And so if you're gonna have US distribution, you wanna make sure that you have a good educational distributor. And um, a good educational distributor has been doing this for years, has, is in touch with buyers. But what's changed about educational distribution is, in the US, is that it used to be that an educational distributor rented your movie for screenings and sold your movie for folks to own, you know, and having courses in the library, in the library, and things like that. My opinion is you should not give your educational distributor the right to rent a movie for screenings. You should retain that right and have somebody on your team that can push the movie out to those screenings because distrib educational distributors are not proactive. They're just reactive. If somebody calls them or emails them and say, we want to do a screening, then they can, they can respond. But if you want to have lots of screenings, you have to have somebody pushing it out to all the potential venues. And that's, I'd like to see that window happen before educational sales. So special event screenings, uh, this is the rental window here. And then I want that to happen before educational sales start. Because once educational sales start, people can buy the movie and then they can do screenings. And if you want to control where your film premieres in different cities, you want to control who's renting it. All right, so let me just give you timing on these windows. So you can decide however long you want to you know, be applying to festivals and going to festivals. It could be six months, nine months, a year. I wouldn't go longer than a year. But what you should do is sort of decide on the end date of that period. And the idea being you're going to go to the, as many festivals or the best festivals you can in that period. And then it's, you know, you're going to stop, I don't know, you know, October 1st. So that means that then if you're going to do theatrical, you can start planning for theatrical in advance of October 1st because there's usually four or five months lead time needed before theatrical. Um, conferences can happen at the same time as festivals. And because conferences are private events, you do not lose your premiere. It's important to understand. So you could be at a bunch of conferences that are private events, and you could still premiere at Sundance or Toronto or you know wherever. Um, so let's say, let's just say you had nine months for conferences and festivals, and theatrical was going to be three months. <coughs> Special event screenings are happening at the same time. So you, if you're theatrical in a few cities, special event screenings can be happening in all the other cities. So at least three months for this, these two together. An educational sales, a minimum of six months. And if it's over the summer, longer. Because during the summer, the people who buy educational films have all gone fishing. Um, and then TV can sort of happen in different places along here. Uh, transactional VOD has to be before subscription VOD. Um, and then direct digital from your website should be at the same time as transactional VOD. So that's going fast, I realize. Um, okay, so I'm going to tell you a couple examples, and not, I don't have the time to show you the trailers, which are actually great. So now we're going to start in the UK, um, and it's a film called The Divide. The film is about income inequality. And it's based on a book or inspired by a book called The Spirit Level. The Spirit Level sold 120,000 copies. Um, and it had lots of graphs and charts. So um, the, the 
filmmaker went to Christopher, the producer, and said, you know, she wanted to make this movie. And he's thinking, well, how do we make this book into a compelling documentary? Um, but she convinced him to do a crowdfunding campaign. They did a crowdfunding campaign. They set out to raise $50,000, and they raised $70,000 from 1,200 contributors. So then Christo said, okay, we now have enough resources to start shooting, and you basically proved there's a core audience for this book out there. And she got 50 organizations to support the crowdfunding campaign. And somewhere I have a slide about this, but basically crowdfunding, the main reason to do crowdfunding is not to raise money, it's to build early awareness of your film and to build a network of support. Raising money is good, but that's the third most important goal. So by doing the crowdfunding campaign, they realized there was gonna be a lot of support for the movie. They went ahead, then they got some grants, um, they got um, tax, a tax credit, um, variety of things. Ultimately, the budget of the movie is a little under $400,000. Um, and yet they went to the Sheffield Film Festival, which was important in the UK, to let their donors know now something was happening. They, they then were planning theatrical. Uh, they got a grant, the BFI, British Film Institute, has a, um, a new models of distribution fund. They gave them 25,000 pounds for their distribution. They opened the movie in London and around the UK. So far they've done two, 200 screenings of the film. And almost every screening, there's been a discussion afterwards. Films have really been successful. And in the film itself, it's seven different characters at different levels of income. There's no graphs and charts. And you just kind of understand how these different levels affect people's lives. And it's perfect film for discussion. It doesn't give simple answers. It just says, you know, this is a critical problem for our societies. Um, what, and they made a Netflix deal that gave them the money so they could pay for their archival footage. Um, they're not quite, they haven't quite broken even, but they're headed that way. And one of the things that's really interesting about this film is that it came out on DVD, and it came out on VOD, and the screenings have kept going. Because people are interested in seeing the film with other people and talking about it. And that's really crucial. So for some films, it comes out on DVD and, uh, and um, you know, Netflix, then it's like over in terms of, um, you know, theatrical or semi-theatrical distribution. Okay, so um, let's go to Holland. <coughs> um, it's a film called Down to Earth. It's a documentary, uh, a family living in Holland, two parents and three kids, very successful professional lives, and um, they, uh, decide they're gonna leave the rat race behind and find another way of, another way of living. So they moved to northern, northern Michigan. Um, I guess that's my email coming in. Forgive me. Can turn it off. Uh, whether it, yeah, but I'm gonna, okay. We'll see if we try with it later. Okay, so they moved to northern Michigan, living in this sort of Native American community, very inspired by a wise man who's in that community. And they decided to go around the world and find other wise men and women and make a film about what these earth keepers, their view of the world and their, their wisdom. Uh, they leave with, they're not a, filmmakers, really. They go with five backpacks and five cameras around the world to find these uh, earth keepers. And they make a remarkable film. 
um, that happened to have gorgeous cinematography, and they convinced Stephen Warbeck, who did the score for Shakespeare in Love and won an Academy Award for it, to do the music. So it's a kind of amazing film. Premiered at the Illuminate Film Festival in the US, uh, won the grand prize. Then they got an offer to distribute the film in France from a conventional distributor. I was like really skeptical <laughs> that this was going to work. It didn't. Um, then uh, Rolf, the, one of the filmmakers, uh, was talking to his 94-year-old grandmother in Amsterdam, and she said, well, there's this magazine called Happiness, and you should get in touch with them. Um, they're going to like your movie. And he thinks, yeah, grandmother, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but he did get in touch with the editor. She saw the film. She did an eight-page spread and started organizing screenings around Holland, and every screening they did was sold out. <laughs> so they thought, okay, we now have started to connect with an audience. Um, they started their theatrical, I think, two months ago. They've so far had over 10,000 admissions theatrically. This is with no distributor. And uh, well, they started out with 20 facilitators, people who would go to those screenings and facilitate discussions afterwards. They now have 40 facilitators. And it just it keeps spreading. Um, so. Uh, I, I'm sorry I don't have a t time to show you the trailer, but it's been oh. remarkably successful. And they've made the film, they, they made their distribution in the same way they made their film. It was this kind of authentic exploration of the possibilities. There was serendipity, there was just finding their way step by step. And now they're going to figure out you know, how, to, how to take it worldwide. Okay, let me jump forward because I'm just trying to. <coughs> Associated with piano tuners in the United States, they meet annually, 
He takes the movie to Anaheim, where their convention is. There's 750 piano tuners in the room. He shows them the movie. They love the movie. And ever since, they've been telling the people whose pianos they tune about Novaya. <laughs> That's a great example of how this can work. So all of these audiences, you can access directly because they're organized online in one way or another. You access them, you tell them about the movie, ultimately you show them the movie. If they like the movie, the word is gonna spread within that audience. Here's another example, a film called American Meat about organic meat raising. You know what I love about his audience chart? It's got color, it's got shape, it's got sizes. And um, it kept changing as he was doing his distribution, as he refined his understanding of who his core audiences were. Um, so I, I really think this is, um, this is crucial. Um, here's the poster to Down to Earth. And then I'm going to jump forward some more. Okay. <coughs> So people come to your website for the first time, the visitors. I would like you to say join us and get them to be subscribers to the mailing list. Ultimately, they can be customers. But what I'd really like them to become is patrons of you as a passionate filmmaker and artist. Okay, here's the spectrum of distribution from formulaic to customized. Here's formulaic, the factory. And there's customized. Um, okay, I'm going to just tell you quickly about a couple films. The first film is called The Big Picture. It's about dyslexia. Uh, Jamie Redford directed it, Karen Pritzker financed it, and I started working with them on this film. Uh, it premiered at Sundance, it was on HBO, and it turned out, I didn't know this, but maybe some of you know it, but 20% of all people in the world are to some extent dyslexic some much more than others, and many don't have any idea that that's what's going on. So when the, they set out to make the film, the idea was to reach, you know, it's gonna be a 10 or 20 minute film for dyslexics and their families. And as it grew and grew and grew, it ended up to be a 52 minute film, and a film that not only would be, a, get enormous response from the community of dyslexics and their families, but from people who knew nothing about dyslexia before. It's a very positive film, and, um, so we were working on the educational distribution, and I learned, I didn't know this, but most colleges and universities in the United States have learning centers for students that have some kind of learning difficulties. So I'm like, okay, we're set. Because all those learning centers are gonna buy this movie <coughs> and show it to students and use it with students, and that turned out to be true. Um, so the next film they made was, it's called Paper Tigers. It's about early traumatic experiences that kids have and how it shapes their lives, both psychologically and medically, over the years. And there's this alternate school in the state of Washington where the principal and the teachers decided to change their approach to discipline and look at these kids more as individuals and try to understand their backgrounds and then be mentors for these kids as opposed to strict disciplinarians. And so we see students in their senior and high school and how, it, how their lives are changed in that year. And the results are amazing in terms of truancy, violence, um, going to college. Um, so film started out, some festivals, and then we, you know, we started doing screenings. So far we've done over 500 special event screenings around the country. And um, we uh, then started selling it educationally. 
And so far, we've sold it in more, we've licensed it to more than 4,500 locations around the country, and we're still going strong. So that's an example of a film that finds its audience, and then people think it's a really valuable tool. And then the third film in the series is called Resilience, and it's a companion piece to um, uh, Paper Tigers. And so it's an interesting, they're both films are made by the same team, dealing with the same subject but in very different ways. And it's a great example where I think all the people that see Paper Tigers are gonna wanna see Resilience and vice versa. So it's a way to you know, combine those audiences. Okay, so these are just some elements of making a strategy for some of the slide. Um, I haven't talked about versions, but one of the fabulous things about making documentaries is that if you make a 90-minute film, you can make a 52-minute version, and maybe you make a 15-minute version as well. I talked to a filmmaker a couple weeks ago, and she said she has an, a feature and an hour, and she's doing screenings around the U.S. She said, when we, I show the 90-minute film, nobody stays for a discussion. And when I show the 52-minute version, almost everybody stays for a discussion. This is a kind of pragmatic thing to understand, and that if you have different versions, then you can seize those opportunities. And there might be situations where a 15-minute version is going to work just fine as well. Plus, the 52-minute version can get shown not just on international television, but also in classrooms. So there's, it's, it's really valuable. And if you want to know, there's a guy in Montreal who I know that if you've got a 90-minute film and you want to make an hour, you send it to this guy in a couple weeks, you have an hour. <laughs> <laughs> his name is John Colina. I can give you his details. I can tell you the last three clients that I've sent to him have not made no changes in what he did. And instead of spending three months tearing their hair out trying to figure out how to do an hour, they have a great hour. So think about that. Okay. So I'm just going to show you a couple more slides and we'll do next. So here's your distribution in Europe. Here's Europe and North America, and here's global. And the future of all this is going to be global distribution, where it's not territory by territory anymore. So here's the spectrum of independence I talked about, from totally dependent to truly independent, made by a filmmaker friend of mine. This is her experience. So here she's trying to get resources. <laughs> Here she's trying to get distribution. Here she's trying to pay the rent. <laughs> and here she's using pragmatic experience to figure um, out her way. All right, so now degrees of separation from audience. So here's four degrees of separation. So people are coming to the movie theater, buying tickets, and then it's going this way. You add money to the equation. There's all the money up here. Some money here, some money there, and not much money to the filmmaker. Um, but if you're selling directly, <coughs> if one degree of separation, then the money is all going to the filmmaker, or if you're doing a screening tour. Thinking about audience, three kinds of audience. Core audience exists in the world, and you're going to try to aggregate them around your film. And then, so this is the film's audience. And then I'll go to the, and this is what I want you to, to be your audience, you know, aggregated. Um, I'm going to jump over <coughs> the differences in educational distribution. 
ways the audience can increase your independence. So what? Funding we've talked about, um, crowdfunding as a way of building awareness and getting some revenue. Now these are the ways you can get revenue out of your core audience. So in some cases they'll buy tickets for screenings, they might do pre-sales, uh, direct sales, and then if, if they're excited and they buy the movie in retail, that's, that's cool too because you'll get some of that. Um, marketing, this is really important. So uh, they can share your teaser or trailer with other people. They could review the film on, uh, or rate the film in different places, you know, Netflix, Amazon, IMDb. Um, crowdsourcing, and these are the things that can contribute to you. The best example of this is there's a film called uh, Indie Game the Movie about independent video games. The movie is available from the filmmaker's website in 25 languages. All 25 of those translations have been contributed by people in different countries. Um, no. And now the film is available in almost any language you can think of. Um, feedback, so if you're thinking of, you're working on a trailer or a teaser, you show it to some people in your core audience, you get a response. If you're thinking about a poster, thinking about music, you can get feedback that's really valuable. And ultimately when the film is almost done, you could do a kind of test screening digitally with an audience and get feedback. And then also your audience can connect you to other folks. They could be organizations, they could be funders, they could be websites. And then last but not least, they might have resources that they can make available to you. Um, Okay, so here's the totally dependent filmmaker, and here's the truly independent filmmaker. Here's my friend who made the slides. Give her a round of applause. <laughs> so last but not least, here are the 10 top reasons that we make in docs, not features. Now, I don't show this to feature filmmakers because they do too fast. And you may be aware of most of these things. So, uh, you know, grants uh, are available to you in ways that are not to fiction. Partnerships with nonprofits are, again, uh, possibility for you. Utility, I didn't talk about utility, but I wanted to just say one sentence about utility. If your film has utility for individuals, whether it's a film related to health and nutrition, um, you know, think about dyslexia, a film about dyslexia, and that film is gonna make a difference in individual people's lives, your possibilities for distribution are really great, as opposed to a film that people are gonna see once and, and not use. So really think about if the film that you're doing has potential utility for individuals. The thing about food films, and the reason that so many of them have succeeded is because people really care about what they put in their, their mouths and their loved ones' mouths, and they want to keep learning and keep being educated about uh, health and nutrition. Um, there are lots of mailing lists out there and websites that you can be tapping into as a documentary filmmaker. We talked about semi-theatrical and educational, which really aren't there for fiction multiple versions. Almost every documentary is built in core audiences. And, and I would say this, that core audiences trump festivals and critics. 
There's a number of documentaries I've worked on that have been really, really successful. They never went to a single film festival, and some of them the critics hated. But the core audience is really liked. Um, you know, a lot of your films have urgency, and this is my favorite, Changing the World. So we have time for a few questions. Um, so, and there's a mic that will float around. Anybody would like to make a comment? Question. I'm, I'm sorry I'm going so fast, but I'm trying to get a lot in. This is something in the front row. For sitting in the front row, she should get a special opportunity. You touched very briefly on the marketing of DVDs now and how that's changing. I wonder if you'd elaborate on it. Well, it depends on what your subject is. There's some areas that, you know, where DVD sales are still healthy. And I would make a distinction between educational DVDs for, that are going to sell for $300 or $250 and consumer DVDs. Um, but in, in, in a lot of areas, DVDs sales are falling. You know, a lot of people I know, they just watch things digitally, they don't have DVDs anymore. But if you're making a film that somebody wants to collect, they're not going to collect it digitally. Um, so think about you know different categories of collectors that you know might want it, and then if you're going to make a film that's going to be used in some ongoing way, then I think your chances of having DVD sales, and particularly if you create extras that are really valuable instead of the boring you know normal extras, uh, can make a difference. Thank you. Raise your hands. Hi, um, thanks for the talk, really enjoyed it. Just wondering if I wanted to engage you, how much money do I need for my budget? Well, the way I work is, it's, um, I, when I agree to do a film, I commit five hours, and that includes the time to watch the movie at some point, and then typically three or four hour consultations along the way. Um, and um, I'd rather just say to people afterwards, individually, than on tape, <laughs> um, but uh, I don't agree to work on a film unless I believe I can make a meaningful difference, which means 39 out of 40 films that come my way, I don't do. Um, if it's fiction, then I, they have to persuade me and usually fail. If it's documentary, um, I usually believe it. So I won't work on a film unless I'm convinced that the filmmaker's going to generate more than I cost, um, and that I can help them avoid some few mistakes. Other questions? Yeah. So regarding the uh, direct digital uh, selling from your website, yeah. it's not contradiction with uh, iTunes or Netflix? No. No, Netflix and uh, iTunes don't really care about that. And there are a couple companies that can do the back end for you if you're selling digitally. The one I like is called VHX. And and now the, Vimeo also does it. And the difference between VHX and Vimeo, and Vimeo just bought VHX, so I'm not sure how long this difference is going to continue. But VHX will share the customer information with you. So the names and email addresses, which I think are so valuable, they will share with you. Vimeo won't do that. So ideally, you're going to find somebody that can help you with that, and then you're going to get that information. I mean, it's so weird to me because if somebody's buying something from your website, they assume you have their name and email address. And um, sometimes these people that won't share it say, well, they don't want filmmakers to abuse those people. I'm like, those people are precious to them. They're not going to abuse them. And they don't assume you have their data. 
they assume the filmmaker does. So I think you need to make sure that that data comes to you and treat them treat them well. And if they want to get off your mailing list, fine. And if they want you know to have special feedback from you, you, you know you give it to them. So John. Yeah, recommendations on DVD fulfillment companies, because I've had mixed experiences with that. Well, in the US, there's a company called AccuTrack, A-C-U-T-R-A-C-K. Um, and if you want to get in touch with me afterwards, it's peter at peterbroderick.com. You can email me, and if, uh, you know I can give you the, the context. But they're very good. Um, so I'd say AccuTrack for DVD and VHX for digital fulfillment. Um, thank you very much for this presentation, as always, awesome. Um, I have a question regarding building an audience as a personal filmmaker. Um, each film can be different, right. unless you work on a trilogy of sorts. Um, <coughs> can you speak about examples of filmmakers who have done radically different films um, in a row and still manage to build that, that audience? Well. In my experience, the people who have made different films have continued to build their audience. And I think the difference here is between um, the kind of anonymous filmmaker and the um, personal filmmaker in a way. So think about websites. Most websites are kind of boring, um, you know, third per written in the third person. The filmmaker's persona is not there. I want your persona to be there. I want them to understand why you're passionately making this movie. And, and I think they, they, the chances that will connect with you and want to be supportive of you are much greater. So if the website looks a little homemade, fine. Because other websites, they look kind of corporate and then there's a blog somewhere and you get to the blog but there's no way to get back to the website. I want them to, to get a sense of you from the beginning and I think that if they do understand the passion with which you're making the movie, that's going to be very important. Um, I, when filmmakers come to me and they say, I say, well, what, what are you working on? They say, well, I've got 10 projects. Which do you want to hear about? I'm like, how about none? Um, <laughs> but, but if they have one project that they have to make, they're compelled to make, they can't resist making, I'm really interested in that. I remember when I was running Next Wave Films, I get these slick press kits, and then I get a handwritten letter with one paragraph about why this person was made this movie. And the handwritten letter won every time. So I, th I think, really think about that. You know, if you were talking to somebody about your film, they would have a sense of the, of the passion in what you're doing. That's what I want them to understand on the list, through the website, through Facebook. I'm not saying don't be on Facebook or don't have a website, sure, but mailing lists are really crucial. Um, I'm going to jump around. If you have more questions, I'll answer, but I'm going to say a few other things. So um, when it comes time to make a deal, I just want to say a few things. Um, the way it normally works um, is a distributor say, you know, we love your movie. Now understand that even the worst distributors are good at one thing, which is telling you how much they love your movie and how great a job they're going to do. They may not be good at anything else, but they're good at that. So don't be seduced by that. Then they say, okay, we're going to send you a, a contract. It's our boilerplate contract. 
Which, and we'll negotiate from there. Okay, so translate boilerplate into the worst contract they could dream up they're gonna send to you, and they'll make it, negotiate so it'll be less bad. I'm like, well, how about if we start out with a fair relationship and work from there? So, I mean, it's, it's, I see this stuff go on, and then, and then remember, you as a filmmaker may have never negotiated a deal before. They probably have negotiated a thousand deals. You're totally intimidated by the process. So maybe you shouldn't be negotiating the deal. Maybe there's somebody who can help you negotiate the deal. But make, be careful who that person is. Now, as a former lawyer, I can say this. Um, most lawyers are five years behind the times. So they can negotiate a great 2011 deal for you. But they haven't noticed that things have changed in the last five years because they're so arrogant. They haven't really been out there like, figuring it out. So make sure that the person that's going to help you is not only experienced in negotiation, but actually knows what's going on today. And that's, there's a kind of small group. Next about negotiation. Even if you've got one offer and you're, you know, this burden the hand, hand mentality that's happening here, there's a way for you to have more leverage in the negotiation. Instead of the distributor assuming that however bad an offer they give you, you're gonna take it, they should understand that you have an internal bottom line, that if it hasn't, isn't achieved, you're gonna walk away. <coughs> you're not gonna tell them what your bottom line is, but if they know you're willing to walk away, then you're gonna have more leverage in the negotiation even if it's a single offer. Next, um, and this is something that filmmakers are really bad at, doing due diligence on distributors. So you should be talking to a minimum of three, I'd like five other filmmakers who are currently or have recently been in business with this company. And that's the only way you're gonna find out the truth. And those filmmakers, they may be a little hard to track down, but it's not that hard because you can see their films on the website, you can look up you know, their contacts, you'll, you'll get to them. Don't just rely on references that distributors give you, because there's probably two people that like them somewhere, even if 80 people hate them, and they'll send you the two. So that doesn't help you. So it's trying to go to them directly and ask clear questions, like, how many territories did they sell your film in? Did you get any money? You know, and a lot of times they'll say, well, they're working on it, it's, everything's great, we haven't got any money yet, and it's like two years have gone by. Um, uh, did you get any money? And was it? How did it compare to what you expected? What the distributor led you to expect? How accessible are they? You know, um, how interactive were they with, with you in terms of marketing? And, and what you're looking for is an honest distributor who's going to think of you as a partner, not a master-slave relationship, which is how many of these things have worked. So if you do your due diligence, then you can be protected from those those really bad situations. And if you don't you'll regret it. The other thing I'd say is that no deal is better than a bad deal. Let me repeat that. <laughs> no deal is better than a bad deal. You're gonna regret a bad deal for a long time. You turn down a bad deal, hopefully there are other deals out there that are fair. Don't make a bad deal. And don't make a deal with a bad distributor, even though the deal might seem good, because nothing good will come with that. And the last thing to say about negotiation is that Never negotiate by email. You want to be talking to the people, either in person, on the phone, on Skype. And then you're going to be getting information from the from in-between lines things. Are they flexible in this point? 
you know, are they totally, you know, stubborn in this other thing? You, you learn stuff. By email, you learn nothing. It goes on forever. No, you want something in writing ultimately, but when you're, when you're negotiating, you're saying, I need this, I want this, this isn't going to work, you can hear what they're saying and, and figure out where there's flexibility and where there isn't. Um, and if it's by email, they'll just say no, or yes, or you don't know. Maybe they would agree if you push them on, you know, at that point. So try to listen, and there's a, you know, there's a lot to learn. Yes? Okay, it's time for one more question. Okay, one more. There she is. Thank you, Peter. It's not a question. I'm uh, Mariah Ravi. I'm in the walk-in consultancy here. I would support what you say, and if, if I may add, if you talk with the distributor, think about what they will do for you and what you need. So for every thousand they sell, they take uh, 35%, 40%. But talk about is it including or excluding the cost? I would advise you to go for including the cost because we have heard terrible stories in the walking consultancy that people thought, oh, well, I go for 30, 70, then I have 70% of every thousand that they make, and then suddenly the cost, and the cost adds up, and the cost adds up, and suddenly you end up with 400, and they end up with 600. Now, we have a sort of good overview of the good um, distributors. So if you are um, uh, uncertain, drop in, have a look. And I have another thing that I heard from one of your colleagues, and I thought it's worthwhile to share with you. Uh, normally, a distributor asks for five years uh, to have your uh, your uh, project. And this uh, this uh, uh, director, who is, happens to be also a lawyer, told us, he says, okay, five years, but I want an extra clause that if in two years you do not make $20,000 or euro for me, I have the right to take it back. And he said, most of them will not make 20000 so after two years, I have my story back. So I thought that was a very worthwhile thing. Okay, let me add two things to that. I would say that kind of make at least should be a 12 months or 18 months, not two years. Okay. Um, it's very hard to go somewhere else after two years and have somebody you know support you. So, uh, But I think that's a good point. Another thing to be careful of in these contracts is if they're going to use sub-distributors, as in, okay, we're gonna have someone sell it from in Asia. You want the you want the sales fee to include the sub-distributor fee. So they're splitting the 30% or whatever it is, not added on to the 30% and <coughs> expenses added on. Yeah. So these are these are really important things and so to get help from someone like you <laughs> would be great. Okay, so last thing. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, you're welcome to email me. I'd be happy to do a, a, you know, a Skype call with you and give you some thoughts <coughs> and suggestions. And um, understand that in this moment, how lucky you are that these possibilities exist for you that five years ago were not there. The new world is not simple, um, and distribution is harder than production, if you ask me. It's a higher amount of decline. But you need to be meaningfully involved in your distribution not just because the distribution will be better, but because you're gonna learn from it what is real and how things are working today. And if you just turn it over to a distributor, and somebody asked me a few years ago, what percentage of my clients who made traditional all rights deals ended up happy? I said, 3% would be a big number, and the other 97% of somewhere between apoplectic and mildly dissatisfied. <laughs> and if you asked me today, I'd say 2%. So there are good distributors, but I don't like all rights as a model. So 
I wish you all well and thank you for coming.